which I think is kind of interesting the way that he does that. It's like he puts the pressure on himself to go out there and get It's like work. when you buy clothes that don't fit because you want to lose weight. <laughs> <That's a good laughs> I like that. I like that. That's I've good. I've done that before, yeah, too. There like, you go. I'm still buying like That's it. what size I should be. <laughs> I've got an acronym for you. Oh, more acronyms. Wonderful. What is it? It's the IBE, the Industrial Buying Engine. It's the newest innovation by the team at Thomas to help you grow your industrial business. You know, I know a thing or two about the Industrial Buying Engine. You can drive more revenue by reaching the 1.5 million verified buyers on Thomas. It's a streamlined three-step process. First, you message buyers. Second, you quote projects. And third, you get paid. The industrial buying engine is accessible from the company's ThomasNet dashboard. Get your free profile today at thomasnet.com slash claim to get started with Thomas and the industrial buying engine. And we're going to sweeten the deal. Our listeners get a 25% off annual subscription with the code CHIPS25, C-H-I-P-S 25. Nick, you know what? It's the great thing about having a guest host is I'm just going to take a nap. I'm going to go lights out on this episode. But this is a seasons episode, not lights out. You can't do that to me. Oh, man. You got to work today. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Welcome to Making Chips. As manufacturing leaders, we go through seasons, seasons of struggle and seasons of celebration. But if you are connected to a community of leaders, you will be equipped to make the most of the peaks and you'll be inspired to move quickly through the valleys. What you will hear is not just our opinion. It is the battle-tested testimonial and advice of a manufacturing leader just like you. So listen up and take notes. Welcome to Making Chips Seasons. Welcome to Making Chip Seasons. Here we are, Nick. Yeah, in your beautiful studio that was your office, and now yeah, it's awesome. our little man cave studio. We are in Melrose Park, Illinois, at the headquarters of Zengers, Inc., and we have a great guest host with us today, somebody that you all know and love, and we have a great guest with us, too. So yeah, I'm excited right. about that. So why don't we just kick it right off? We've got Paul Van Meter from Pro Shop Yeah, as if you our need an host. introduction to Paul, we've done it like 16 times on yeah. all the episodes he's been on. But Yeah, just go to makingchips.com and search Paul. And yeah. You'll find plenty of introductions to him. <laughs> welcome, so welcome, Paul. Paul. Yeah. Here you are Thanks, as guys. our guest host. It's great to be here in this cave. It's yeah. <laughs> stylish. It's awesome. It's cozy. Yeah, yeah it is really cool. To it. Yeah, so absolutely. oftentimes a guest, but first time as a guest host. How do you it's feel? an honor. Thank you. Yeah. I, I hope I can deliver it. The expectation. I mean, some of your, like Mike Payne has set the bar pretty high. That yep. was a good so, one. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And we got some coming out soon with Tony, Tony yes. Gunn. Oh, that's and those are off the charts, funny. I'm sure. Yep. Those are pretty funny. So, And we appreciate you guys coming into town. We have a great party tonight, too. I mean, if you're listening to this episode now, you missed the Get party. Get a time machine. Yeah, you missed the party. But it won't be the last Making Chips party that we have because it's going to be fun. I'm looking forward to it. We probably are going to have like 40 to 50 people coming tonight. So it should be a really good time. Yeah, just for something we announced this week, basically. Yeah. I think we it announced was at it, the end. Yeah, within the, the last, last seven whatever, days. No so, doubt yeah, about it. Really cool. So it's going to be a good time. So what's on the menu, Paul? What do you yeah, got for Yeah, what are we talking today? about today? Yeah, it's a topic that's been sort of heavy on my mind, both the good and the bad of it. But it's called the haves and have nots of machine shops. And Great. I've been seeing a widening disparity in the industry about shops that are just absolutely slammed busy, setting records, and shops that are kind of pretty light on work and saying on social media, hey, we're not doing too hot. I'm seeing that same thing, Paul. 
Yeah. Absolutely. Do you think this is new to have such a disparity between the haves and the have-nots? Because I feel like pretty much the tide rises and falls yeah. for everybody, right? It's definitely not new, but I think the gap is widening. And okay. There's a gotcha. few things that I think are contributing to that. And in, in my strong belief about the importance of the industry, I want every shop to thrive, right? Sure. Of course. Yeah. There's enough yeah. work coming back yeah. onshoring. We need all those companies. And it's a huge shame when you have someone that's put in their life savings and blood, sweat, and tears into a shop that doesn't succeed. So hopefully we can share a few things that really help the whole industry. Well, That'd you've shared before like some of the emotional times that you and your guest, who you'll introduce in a minute, like that you guys went through when you were going through the tough times in the early stages of Pro Shop. And so you have genuine Pro empathy. Pro CNC, our machine shop. Yeah. Yes. Sorry, that's what it was. Pro CNC. Yes. So you have genuine empathy for the shops that maybe are going through a tough time. Absolutely. Yeah. So I remember I have a little story and then we'll introduce our guest. So I just gave you guys a tour and showed you how if you go back a couple decades ago, we used to get shop owners coming into our counter area and they come in, they buy their drills and their taps and their carbide inserts and stuff like that. And I remember that there was a gentleman that was a client of ours and he would just buy drills, taps and end mills from us and regular shop supplies and had a discussion about CNC machines. And he told me he was like, well, my dad doesn't believe in CNC machines. He doesn't want to get one. He thinks they're too expensive and so on. And guess where that company is now? Sure. Of course. They no longer exist. Yeah. And it's sad. Absolutely. And it was sad it's for that sad. guy that went to work in the family business and the father didn't believe in the future of manufacturing. And he just thought that staying where he was, was going to be good enough. And it wasn't. Yeah. No. If you're not moving forward, you are moving backwards. Yeah, you are. So before we move forward and introduce our guest, Paul, as a guest host, has selected a one of our new segments. And what do you have for us today, Paul? Yeah. Which segment is it? I chose the Leader Spotlight. In this community of manufacturing leaders, there's always somebody doing something amazing. But most of the time, it goes unseen. Making Chips wants to change that one leadership story at a time. It's time to give credit to the best in the business. It's time to learn from our peers so we can all rise together. It's time for Making Chips to shine the manufacturing leadership spotlight. So, Paul, who do you want to shine the spotlight on? I would like to shine the spotlight this time on Hernan Ricarte of Ricarte Precision down in Orange County, California. Okay. Tell us about him. Yeah. Hernan, I met him a few years ago. Just an incredibly invested, dynamic guy. His dad started the business. He wasn't originally thinking he was going to get into the business, but he did a few years ago. Is really pushing it forward in so many ways. Huge investments into the company. But the thing that really jumps out to me is deep interest in collaborating with other shops. He recently hosted a roundtable at his shop with about a dozen other machine shops, and they got into best practices, process improvement, scheduling, staffing and recruiting, ERP, supply chain, material delays, throughput, growth and cash flow, just there to share with each other, talk about the ups and downs, the challenges that they can help each other with and share perspective. Sounds like the origins of making chips. Yeah, yeah. That sounds amazing. Sounds like somebody we should have maybe a season two guest host. Yeah, no, that's really cool. And I think what's cool about it is this isn't like an official local industry association or anything, it's right? It's not, no. No, he just no. put he it just together. He just did it organically. Did. That's yeah. great. Well, props to you, Hernan. Yeah, we love it. All right. So speaking of other awesome people, 
Do you want to introduce our guest? I am thrilled to do so. Our guest today is my long, long time best friend and business partner, Kelsey Highcope. If there's anyone that has even more passion for the industry than I do, it's Kelsey. And nice. he comes with a huge brain, a ton of passion, and just deep experience in the industry. So I'm excited to talk with him today. Great. Man, that is so kind of you. The huge <laughs> brain and deep experience. I'm a little bit humbled to hear you say all Big that. Big brain Kelsey, what's <laughs> yeah, up, man? there we go. Right. Welcome, Kelsey. <laughs> so now, can I take a nap now since we got the big brain yeah. and we the got baritone big brain, voice? We got experience I can just go to sleep and let you guys <laughs> handle done. it. We're done. We're done here. Mic drop. So what is this topic, the haves and the have-nots? Like, How do we dive into this then? Yeah. As we kind of alluded to at the beginning, this widening disparity of shops that are super busy and shops that are not. That phrase, haves and have-nots, I think colloquially, or however you say that word, used to be described sort of rich people and poor people. And clearly, there's in any industry, in any type of business, there's always going to be companies that thrive and grow, and there's going to be ones that don't. And there seem to be some things that most successful shops are really doing, and this, the ones that are not as having much success are not doing. And so hopefully by revealing what some of those are and discussing them, by no means is it an exhaustive list, but hopefully there's enough jewels there to help people out. Yeah. I mean, we always say on Make It Chips that our mission is to equip and inspire manufacturing leaders. And I think if we can inspire someone to look truthfully at their business, and if they maybe are have not, it's not too late to become a have. It's not too late to make those investments in your company. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's never too late. I mean, there's enough work out there. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, I think the long-term trends for precision machining and manufacturing in North America are super positive. Yes. Right? There's lots of demand. There's lots of reshoring and onshoring. There's industries that are absolutely thriving and booming, and there's opportunity to get into those no matter what where you're starting from. So, Kelsey, Paul mentioned he's seeing this wider gap between the haves and the have-nots to stick with the theme. And you have your own perspective, although you do very much of the same work, your partners, but are you seeing that to the same degree? Are you seeing this gap widening? Yeah, it's really interesting because I think that there's, like you said, always been a significant gap from the top to the bottom kind of thing. But I think that what's being more obvious now as we move forward is some of the reasons why those things have been happening. I think previously it was like personalities or who you know, right? What's the saying, right? It's not what you know, it's who you know. It's like, I think there was a lot more of that kind of thing going on. And now it's about what you deliver and how you do that. And does that filter down to the bottom line or not? And that's a bigger proportion now. Of what's the gap about? So... Yeah. Well, let's start with the good news. So you said there's a lot of reasons, Paul, you'd listed a few. There's a lot of reasons for the haves to be thriving right now. So some of those are external to themselves. And do you want to explore some of that? Yeah. Well, I'd love to actually just to sort of put some bullet points on the main topics we want to talk about. So there's four of them. The first one is being a sales-driven organization, which we can get into. You got my attention. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Inconsistent adoption of technology would be the second one. Yeah. And okay. I think that inconsistency is like particularly an issue. People always want to adopt technology, but it's whether you can do it consistently or not. Quality certifications. And then cybersecurity would be our last Oh, wow. Cybersecurity is on there. I didn't see yeah. that coming. It made one of the top four then. It did. And by quality certifications, you're talking about things like ISO and yes. ITAR and AS9500. Yeah, yeah, things sure. like that. Sure. sure. Okay, cool. So yeah, love to dig into four of those. I'll take the first one because I was the sales guy at our machine shop. I was the one responsible for making sure our 75 families that we were supporting had good hours all the time. 
But when we first started our machine shop, I didn't have that perspective. And we were not a sales-driven organization at the beginning, right? We had major fluctuations in our revenue from month to month. We'd have a great month. We'd have a really low month where we were below our break-even point. And we're, so we're pulling cash out of the bank to cover payroll. And sometimes, I'm sure everyone listening, especially smaller shops, as shops grow, they, they almost certainly have been through those struggles. Sure. Right? You must feel like you're going to work at a casino every month. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but the shops that I see most successful right now are the ones that are just really consistently putting in the effort. They either have salespeople they've hired, they've worked with outside sales firms that are doing prospecting for them, or the owners themselves wear that sales hat a lot of the time. And they have other people that do the execution work. It doesn't really matter, I don't think, who is doing the sales, but the fact that month in, month out, you are marketing, you're going to trade shows, you're selling online. Developing relationships. Yep, absolutely. Networking organizations, networking events is just so important. I talk to people all the time who say, I went to a trade show in in Texas five years ago, and I met someone that is now our biggest customer, right? Or I was at this networking event for a conference, and I had a conversation with this guy, and he told me about this other company that's looking for something, and now we do a million dollars of work Yeah, with you can follow year. those like networking trails Absolutely, back. Absolutely, like, 100%. Just be social. Sometimes it's easy to hide in your cave and think about how busy your shop is, and why would I go to a networking event? What's the ROI on that? And it's like, well, don't ask yourself a week later. Ask yourself after you've done a lot of them, three, four years later. Well, and the typical shop owner, I would say, is probably more of that engineering mindset. They started out as that practitioner on the machine tool, and then they've grown the company by that business coming to them, putting out a shingle, I guess you would say. But then you get to a point where, yeah, you need to be more proactive, and that's not necessarily their natural inclination to be a salesperson. You said the word that's been ringing in my mind. It's proactively selling. Yes. Even when you're over capacity and you're not sure how you're going to get the workout, you still sell. Yeah. And that's one of the big takeaways. So tonight, we talked about the party we're having tonight. I won't tell you who it is, but you might click for you. So a pro shop user is coming to our party tonight who I am planning on being a client of Zenger's in the very near future. <laughs> so okay. I'm going to meet him for the first time. I mean, my sales team has been working on it. And he's going to come to the party. And my intention is to shake hands with him and be like, let's move forward. <laughs> so, I do not know who that is. Well, you'll find out. <laughs> All right. Awesome. But yeah, the, the consistent part is one of the key takeaways. Even when you are going through a period where you have record sales and you have a log backlog, that is the time to be doing out and doing marketing events, doing sales, because that big lump of work you have now, that will ebb in the future. And the work you're doing today, next week, that will generate the business you need in six months to a year. Yeah. And if you think about where that even comes from, that ebb and flow is you're literally changing your capacity. So when you get these big ebbs and you've got lots of stuff coming in and you're full, you buy another machine, you get going. So in some ways, you're just increasing your capacity. So you need even more sales because that's going to be when the new stuff comes in is three months from now. And you need the sales to support it. So you need to be selling it now. Yeah. I have a client, a big client of ours, and I've tried to get him to come on making chips, but he just doesn't want to, to talk about this tactic. But his tactic in a nutshell, he does really big work. So he does the work that most machine shops cannot do. He's doing a lot of like satellite work and military work and there's NDAs on and, and everything. But what he does is he will buy a very, and his machine tools are million dollar plus, and he will buy a new machine tool on an annual basis just to push himself 
from a sales perspective to go win more business because he knows he's got to pay for that new machine tool. Yeah. Which I think is kind of interesting the way that he does that. It's like he puts the pressure on himself to go out there and get it's new It's like work. when you buy clothes that don't fit because you want to lose weight. <laughs> <That's a good laughs> I like that. I like that. That's I've good. I've done that before yeah, too. There like, you go. I'm still buying like it. That's it. what size I should be. <laughs> <laughs> but Kelsey, you and I were talking before we started recording about the different types of business that you can get. And you have some more predictable work, key accounts where it kind of like keeps the lights on and maybe it's more higher volume, but you don't want to be so consumed with that that you don't create space for some of those spikes either. Yeah, yeah. And I think thinking about value streams that you have in your organization, you know, like where is it in the company that we have dedicated or at least understood value streams. So you talk about that like repeat production, long-term contract work kind of thing. It's like, okay, that's a clear value stream. But where is our short-term prototype? And if you're trying to run those two through the same set of folks, processes, equipment, you're probably missing it. You need a different stream, yes. right? Yes, exactly. And shout out to my older brother, who's the president of Hennig. He's two things that we just said come to mind. So we call that creating the capacity or creating that production line for that, what we're not filled with right now. We call that a focused target market segment. And we kind of like engineer our business to make sure that we always protect that capacity. So you're not so busy with your big customers that you can't get the next one. And then the other thing is you got this pendulum swinging, like where's the bottleneck? And so if the bottleneck's on sales, you get a bunch of sales. Now the bottleneck's on operations. And then you like buy a machine or increase your capacity or hire some more people or get more efficient. And that's always going to be passing back and forth. And he's like, keep it on ops. He comes from like a lean mindset. He's like, keep it on ops. That's a healthier company when it's on operations than it is when you don't have anything and you're like, oh, maybe now we should hire a salesperson because this isn't an instant solution. Yeah. We used to call that sales pressure. Yeah. How much pressure is on the operations side of the business from the sales team? And there's some really interesting stuff. In fact, uh, Paul, you did a great segment on pricing for capacity. And there's some things that happen that are very interesting. When you've got positive sales pressure, you can start to get a little more creative on your pricing and drive profits. Absolutely. You can cherry pick the work a little bit more than if you don't have the work at all. Okay. Hopefully that is useful to folks. Yeah. So what's the second topic, Paul? Inconsistent adoption of technology. Okay. And there's really, I mean, there's lots of different sub areas within that. Of course, machine tool technology and related things like presetters and different types of holders, robots, pallet systems. That's part of it. Software is obviously another really big part of it. So uh, the shops that I am seeing that have, they're having the most success are definitely adopting technology on all fronts. And I mean, even Hernan, we mentioned a little bit ago, I think he's spent like a million and a half dollars in new machines in the last year or two adopting lots of different software tools on quality and quoting and ERP and lots of different areas. And those are paying dividends. You know, one of the things that I think that most people don't think about, they think about technology as like helping improve efficiency, right? Which is clearly the case. If you have a five axis machine with a 20 pallet pool feeding it, you can run that at night. So to your other show, lights out machining, that clearly pays dividends there, especially because skilled machinists are so hard to find right now. Yeah, especially the ones that want to work in the middle of the night. Yeah, yeah. Always interesting folks that want to work on that night shift. Yeah, it's like the more skilled they are, they understand like, hey, I can pick the shift that's most attractive to me and I probably want to spend some time with my family and sleep in my bed Yeah, yeah. with my wife. Exactly. (laughs) Not at 2 p.m. So let's talk about the have-nots. Why do you think that people don't invest in technology in a very methodical and kind of vision forward looking manner. Yeah. You think they're scared? 
Yeah, absolutely. Being scared is definitely a part of it. It's different. It's new. It's easy to buy two or three vertical mills and it's the same price as one machine with a huge pallet pool on it, right? They're like, hey, I can get more spindles by just buying some verticals as opposed to this thing that I need to figure out how to make the pallet pool work. And there's a lot more maybe complexity to the systems and having it be successful running all night long. And I just also want to clarify, buying verticals is not a big problem necessarily. I was at a shop just recently that has lots of them and they are absolutely thriving because they're doing all these other things super well fits their business model perfectly do you think they're also scared of the debt or do you think it's more they're just scared of the technology yeah i'm sure it's the actual dollars out to drop a million bucks on a really nice machine with a pallet pool that's a big check to write so there's kind of two sides to it so you're like kind of saying exactly what i say when i sell the pallet delivery systems from trinity that we were an integrator for those and a lot of times the machine tool sales people out there are like, hey, I know how to sell a standard machine tool and I can sell three of them and they'll get what they need. And there's a case for that because you have like some redundancy there. If one goes down, like you're not totally down. But man, there's a really good case for getting one machine with the automation and getting the productivity of three or four. So there are two sides to that coin, but it's interesting you brought that up. And kind of to dovetail off of what Jason's original question the have not. So like in what aspect of technology do you see the most inconsistency? Are they consistent on like the manufacturing equipment side of technology and inconsistent on the software, on the operational software or vice versa? Or is there a particular area where you can say, here's where I see the consistency fall off a cliff? I think because it goes along kind of with a mindset shift, they often go hand in hand, right? Shops that are not buying a lot of automated equipment are also generally not buying a ton of software products that are going to help drive efficiency. And they're like, it's too expensive. I can do fine with spreadsheets or just cookbooks or whatever. And I'll stick with my verticals and try to keep my overhead low and do it that way. I think another area that's important to discuss about technology adoption is that quite often the tools, whatever the machine tools, the software, the whatever, is far more capable in its underlying than what people can actually take on. And so they're like intimidated. That's a real thing with technology, intimidated by the technology. And as such, they do a pilot or they try something on, which is not bad, but then they don't follow it up with like, okay, now everything that's going through the cell is going to use the in-machine probing. It's like, well, we did that one project that had in-machine probing, but we never really got it like up and running. And I see companies that do that all the time. It's like, you bought all this probing gear and then you used it on one project? Where is it on the next one? So the, the pilot, one? if I'm understanding, the pilot proved itself and then they just went back to the old way. Like they didn't continue with the leap. Yeah, and I think that's what we used to call institutionalizing the knowledge. How do you make that the standard tool you're going to use from now on? It has applications. You bought it often for a big check and a bunch of capability, but people are getting just a fraction of the capability out of their tools. Like it wasn't a fluke that it worked. So now you can continue with it. <laughs> or maybe the ROI, if you'll call it that, wasn't quite as great as they wanted because it's still the first trial at it and they haven't totally refined and perfected everything. Something another that might be uh, relatable to folks is let's say you invested in some expensive but fancy zero-point tooling and fixturing, but you still have dozens and dozens of traditional vices, and you're still using those vices in most of your machines, but you have a few of the really expensive zero-point fixtures, and you use them on some of your machines, as opposed to a shop that goes all in on zero-point tooling, and they sell all their old vices except for the one they keep on the manual mill, 
and they just really go all in and they now have consistent processes with tooling that's transferable to any machine. It's super fast. It's always dialed in. Their setup times drop, their scrap drops. But that's, again, big check, big shift in throwing out. I think there's also a big thing about sunk cost. You know, I own 20 grand in vices. I don't want to throw all those out or sell them for pennies on the dollar, right? Yeah, yeah. I'm like, I'm so committed to these decisions I made a few years ago. And even though I know they weren't the right ones or the best ones, I spent that money. Sometimes yeah. they're committed decisions they made 10 years ago. Oh, and absolutely. boy, has the manufacturing industry changed. Right. And my response to some of those, because we hear that all the time, selling ERP software, is like the ROI on something that's not a good tool anymore is not getting better and better. The longer you do it, it's not like a fine wine. It's not going to get better as it ages. It's just getting more antiquated. So the folks that have, I don't know, the guts to say, you know what, I got to move past that. I got to adopt more technology. It's kind of sucks that I invested all that and maybe didn't get what I wanted from it, but I got to move on. And if, again, you're not moving forward, you're moving backwards. So there's got to be some form of a leap of faith. You're not always going to be able to take like baby steps all the way through to where you need to be in technology. At some point, you got to say, hey, it's proven itself enough or I'm bought in enough and we're committed. Go. Yeah. And you get sort of technology fatigue. You hear about it quite often. It's like if you're trying 10 things, but none of them are becoming part of your day-to-day work, the work holding you gave an example of, it's like once you start building that up to a confidence level and it's all over the place and it's the standard, then the threshold for even people to think about it goes way down. And so they're ready for a new technology. But if you're constantly on 10 different technologies that are only a quarter implemented or on those couple machines, it can be a lot harder, right? Yeah, you said becomes the standard. I think that's the leap. You say this is the standard. We won't do it the old way anymore. And once it's the standard, it's the standard. Well, it's, it's funny you brought up that work holding application. And my dad's been retired for a good five years. And we used to buy Kurt D680 vices by like the skid load and <laughs> every quarter or something like that. And I remember he came in recently and he's like, you're a little low on the Kurt vices, aren't you? We're not really selling those vices anymore. So. Call them dinosaur vices. Yeah, yeah I, exactly. I feel bad because we named the name. <laughs> <laughs> right, <yeah. laughs> but there's a lot of those out there. Yep. There's a lot of those out there. And they're still being used. I mean, we still sell them. And I have, we have them, them in my shop. Just like, case, there's a time yeah. and a place for those. But That's blasphemous, Nick. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? Like, And I'm supposed to be preaching, get off the dinosaur vice, but there's a time and a place for that, right? right. And I call them dinosaurs because they're big, they're bulky, and they're going extinct on Jason's shelf. <laughs> and Steve's mad. Yeah, exactly. I'm like, yeah, we're trying to sell more solutions than just a plain old vice. Hey, Jason, what's the first thing you think of when I say the word setups? You're not making chips <laughs> yeah, and you're right. not making money. Yeah, exactly. It's one of the biggest battles that can hold you back as a manufacturer. Absolutely. So enter the Lean Setup Guide from ProShop. Okay, what's that? This guide can help anyone, whether you're a ProShop user or not, but ProShop users have experienced a 50% reduction in setup time because the software builds these lean principles into their process. Yeah, so it's a totally free download. You can go to ProShopERP.com slash 50 and you can get your copy of the Lean Setup Guide. Bam. Before we move on to the third point, there's an important element of this that a lot of people don't think about, and that is how attractive technology is to your end customer. So I've spoken at this at conferences, I've written about it, but when a customer is looking for a supplier, looking for a machine shop, they are really looking to reduce their risk right? They want to make sure they're getting good quality parts on time with the right paperwork. And if they know that you, let's stick with software because it's easy. If you have really robust 
digital business processes as opposed to, say, paper travelers that are around the shop and getting lost and you lost the cert. So now you can't ship those parts and you got to rebuy material because you don't have traceability anymore. That is not attractive to a buyer. Yeah. There's more opportunities for you to screw up for them. Yeah. If you don't have scheduling, if you don't have good gauge calibration and traceability, I've definitely had many shops and clients say they won this customer because the customer was so impressed with their technology adoption, right? And they're looking to get out of shops that aren't adopting technology and looking to get into shops that are really being on the leading edge there. Yeah, absolutely. Just the other day, Tony Gunn and I were at Schmidt Tool and Engineering and we were recording in front of their multi-million dollar new hydromat. And I remember when we went in there and Tony asked the question, he's like, was there any paperwork that you need to hide before we start recording? They're like, no, we're pro shop user. We don't, we've got to, we don't have all those travelers and stuff all over the place, so we don't need to worry about it. Yeah. One of the strategic sourcing managers that we used to work with back at ProCNC, he said when he walks into a shop, within five minutes, he can smell the chaos. You can't hide the chaos if you have a buyer or a quality team coming in to audit you, and you can reduce the chaos with technology. It really makes a difference. Yeah, it's interesting. I think you can smell the chaos, and I agree. There's always a correlation to the technology and the processes they have. You can always smell the culture, too. That's always something that you can get right from the very beginning. And I think you can make a lot of analogies between a really good manufacturing company and a really good restaurant. So, And this isn't to like discredit all restaurants that are chaotic, but you go to some restaurants and they're yelling and they're screaming and they're missing orders and they're like, where is this order? And then you go to other like, especially like your fine dining restaurants where they put a lot of emphasis on the operations of the restaurant. Everybody's calm. Everybody is, all the dishes come out when they're supposed to, hot, perfectly prepared. There's just such a vast difference they between the two standards. of them. They follow standards. They follow standards. So you're speaking my language because this yeah, is I my know. other family business. And just the other day we were talking about like, hey, when are you going to retire? What are you going to do with the restaurant? We have a fine dining restaurant. And he's like, you know what it is? He's like, people are going to try to value the restaurant based on the reviews. And they should. And how long we've been in business and how big the real estate is and all that. And he's like, but the shop, right? The kitchen operates so much better than it did when we first opened. He's like, it's just clockwork now. He's like, and that's where really all the value comes from. Because that's what makes totally the food true. consistent, the food good. It creates the capacity for someone to create that next menu item. You know what I mean? Because they're not just like chasing their tail and the whole house isn't on fire. Well, so many shop owners are fighting fires all day long. Yep. It's just chaotic. It's crazy. And those that are not, just you walk in, everything seems smooth. There's people aren't running around. They're not yelling at each other. You're absolutely right. It's all about good business processes. Yeah. And I've talked about this on Making Chips many, many times and had debates about it. And I truly believe that the best run companies out there are the ones where the leader runs the company such that they don't have to be there. But there's a lot of leaders out there that think, well, no, I have to be there every day and I have to be working every day and I have to be making sure I'm checking my emails just in case there's a customer screaming at me. You're probably not leading in the right way if you're doing that. And you probably have some processes or operations that you really need to work on. So speaking of chaos, you've got another point for us, Paul. You got your third point on the difference between the haves and the have-nots. And this one's really interesting because I would think this would be more micro, like not one of the four major points, but you've got it in here. Yeah, well, I'll let Kelsey, we have two that are yeah, these last two fairly are related, about. but I'll let Kelsey lead because this is kind of his domain. But yeah, quality certifications and then cybersecurity. Okay. So yeah, so just talking about quality certifications, I think it's interesting because In manufacturing companies, there's always been the parts have to be right. That's always been a thing. And people used to approach it from a lot of different angles. It's like, oh, no, I got this approach to making sure people check it. Or 
got this technology sometimes that makes it so it's really hard to get wrong. But what certification systems do is they often force the issue for a lot of companies to do the work because you say you're going to do it and you're going to get audited for it. So the difference between people should be checking that part and it should be right is really different from, yeah, we wrote it down, which means we really did check it. And sometimes it's a real pain in the butt. You're like, do I have to? I just checked it. It's good. Why am I writing this down or recording it somewhere? And the difference is in all of the certification type processes that because you're required to show that you did it, you actually do it a lot more. And it's fine to say we do it, but it's really an actually different outcome and a different process that you record it and then you know for sure it happened, right? People are on the hook themselves. It's not like who ran these parts? It's like, I know exactly and I know what the results were. And that's at the micro scale. But when you talk about certifications like AS certification or an ISO medical certification, it's actually required that all through the business, you have those steps and you have those checks. And the key to making that successful is to make sure that the overhead part is low burden. So now you're doing all the right stuff and it doesn't take you a lot of extra time effort to make sure that you really are holding everyone accountable for their step in the process. Everything from the moment you started estimating the product, right? It's like, yeah, we have it documented and it was required. So of course we got to do it kind of thing. Yeah. We do something when I want like at the head of a product group or a regional sales director to present on like his strategy. I want him to have the strategy, right? But I know he's going to have a better one if I make him present it to everybody. Exactly. And that's kind of what these audits are doing, right? Everyone thinks you should have these quality processes. Of course, who's going to argue against that? But when you have to get audited and when you have to present it and prove that you're doing it and prove that you put the work in to be consistent with it it's much more likely to happen. It's almost like a glorified checklist in some ways. I think we've had our issues with checklists in the past, but the reality is if you have a big checklist and you've checked all the things off on the checklist, it's pretty likely it's all done. Whereas if you had that in your head, eh, (laughs) it might not be done. So if there's a shop owner that's listening or a manufacturing leader and they're like, okay, the first two, check, check, I got those, I'm a half. But then they're thinking about certifications. They're like, I'm not certified. They're successful. They've got a great business, but they just don't have any certifications. Where would you recommend that they start? And they might even be thinking to themselves, why? Like, why should I? Where would you tell them to start? Yeah, I mean, for sure, there are plenty of companies that can absolutely thrive without certifications. They're in a niche, they're in an industry where that just doesn't matter. Maybe they make aftermarket automotive parts and they just are killing it, right? Or maybe oil and gas. I don't think that there's... API is yeah, a certification okay, there is. for oil okay. and gas, absolutely. Okay. Uh, it's very closely based on the ISO standard, yeah, but, but more, I mean, more automotive, stringent. Well, I yep. guess that automotive aftermarket, they probably don't have a certification, no, do they? No, so, but... Certifications absolutely open doors to other industries. We've had clients that were heavy in one and really wanted to diversify into another industry, which I think is generally a great idea anyway, because each industry has its ups and downs. And if you're, say you're balanced 25% in four different industries, it's going to level out and take some of the bumps out of your revenue as you kind of go through uh, the seasons. So hey, you just had to drop that in there. The seasons. Yeah, there you That's go. That's beautiful. So yes, and particularly right now in 2023, defense, unfortunately, is huge. Commercial space is huge. Aerospace is absolutely coming back after COVID. And some of the shops we talk to that are the most busy are serving those industries and or they want to get into those industries because they definitely not let you in. First question on the survey, are you AS900 certified? Yeah, no, nope. okay, to never mind. You can't fill out the rest of the survey. So if somebody has no certifications, is that where you would recommend that they have as their goal to get certified? 
if they want to diversify their business, if they want to serve the industries that they don't serve today, yeah, I think going and getting a certification is... No, but I mean AS91 in particular. AS9100 is ISO 9001 plus. Right, right. right. So they got to start with ISO 9001. No, you can go straight to AS. Oh, you can. Yeah. Okay. And we would argue that there's so many reasons do straight to that. Okay. Uh, especially if your overhead, the systems are lightweight enough, as Kelsey was alluding to. Yeah, and I was just going to say, like, you take an extremely well-run company and they're like, yeah, but we don't have any certifications. The chances are that if you... Just look over the standard and decide the few points that aren't quite in line with the standard. You're doing 90% of it's it. It's going to be a slam dunk. Yeah. And it's really like not even that expensive. Like getting actually certified, yeah, it's a few thousand bucks. I think less than $10,000 total to get your actual certification, right? That's going to be good for two more years. And the hard part and the expensive part for companies is if they're not well-organized, they don't have good processes, they don't know how to do that piece, but that's also the opportunity. If you're not that company that's got those things, there's your opportunity, right, is to get those things in place. And then the certification will prove it to other people and really to yourself that we're doing it all. Yeah, so let me ask my personal business question, and we're literally working through this in some of our meetings. And you tell me if you think that the trend is changing, but historically, we've been able to serve, everyone has a short list of the few largest aerospace manufacturers, and that was top of that list is historically our biggest customer. And we weren't making fly parts. We were making fixtures so that they could make fly parts. So we didn't have to have AS9100 or ITAR, we're ISO, but we didn't have to have some of those aerospace certifications. And I'm not saying, they, they haven't told us that we have to, but I have this hunch that a couple layers removed from people who are actually making the parts that are on the aircraft or defense or whatever the end product is, I have a hunch that they're starting to push that standard down or a couple layers out. And I don't know why I think that, but would you say that I'm on the right track and that we should probably consider, even though we don't make parts that go into space? You're making the parts that go into the processes yeah. that create Like if you were me, parts. would you be aggressively pursuing those certifications? I mean, start out with... How close are you already? Like if you're a super well-run, process-driven, understand it, I'd say, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. like I think the ISO audits don't really cause us any headaches or anything so like AS9100 that. is going to be a tiny lift for yeah. you and the company. And you're going to be able to say to all of your aerospace customers, yeah, absolutely. We meet the requirement. Because I do see on some of our competitor sites that they're advertising that. And I'm like, well, why if it's not essential? Yeah, I think it will open doors. And I think it'll make your company better. There's documented proof that companies that have ISO certification, for example, are more profitable than companies that are not. And I don't know if there's causality or just correlation there. But going back to the restaurant analogy, when you have and a QMS is essentially a BMS. It's a business management system. It's just focused mostly on quality. And when you have a well-run business management system, you have less fires and fires cause waste, which are expensive. So, yeah, I think there's a great argument that just to have a more valuable shop even, because this is another element of it, when you go to sell your company in the future, if that's your path, your company will be worth more if you serve those industries that support higher multiples of valuation. Sure. And isn't that the point, right? Make your company more valuable over time? Yeah, whether yeah. your kids are getting it or you're going to sell it. Because, yeah, those business processes help you be more consistent, help you be more profitable, have you less stress and serve the clients and industries that require them. Sure. All right. And what's our final point? Cybersecurity. Okay. Another one that I didn't see coming. Yeah. I tried to jump ahead to cybersecurity last time, so I'm excited for it. (laughs) So particularly for clients or shops that serve 
defense and commercial space, the CMMC standard, Cybersecurity Maturity Model Certification, is right on the horizon. It's coming fast and hard. It is completely unavoidable. And essentially, if for a shop that serves those industries, if they do not get that certification, they will not be able to participate in those industries anymore. Full stop. And so if maybe they're 5 or 10% defense, they might decide, I'm just going to get out of that industry altogether. Yeah, it's not worth the, it's not worth effort, the effort and the money. And the cost. Yeah. But I will predict that even other industries that are not defense in space will start adopting more and more of the requirements of these standards because no one wants their data to be breached and their drawings and models out on the dark web or whatever. So so is there a high cost? Like, do you have to buy all sorts of whatever it's called, malware, spyware, prevention software, stuff like that? <laughs> I'm not I mean, where you guys are, but... The cybersecurity in general process is a lot more about people, their adoption, and how you roll it out. So you think about a lot of different things that could be high overhead and there's usually shortcuts, but not shortcuts in a bad way, shortcuts in a good way. Like, oh yeah, if we use this kind of process instead of that kind of process, it's going to be one-tenth the time. And cybersecurity is a lot of that. It's also a lot about people because where a lot of good security technology falls down is when people start end around because it's so hard to use right? And, and you see it in all kinds of stuff. But it's like, no, you're not supposed to save your password there. But I do. Oh, no, now we make it so you can't save your password there. So then I cut and paste it into my notepad that's now sitting with all my passwords right on my own desktop. Like people just start working around the problem. And cybersecurity... When Paul <laughs> I'm guilty of that. <laughs> I'm so guilty of that right now. Like in my I notes on my phone, look in your I, eye. I got to delete this. <laughs> what about like you're putting your password on a sticky note? Is that okay? I mean, luckily, somebody will only see that when they're on video conference with you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Jeez, man. I don't do I that. I have a I'm lot of asking. work to do right now. <laughs> but the cybersecurity piece that is an amazing statistical development is in the last five years manufacturers have been hit with ransomware yeah. at a ratio that was sort of unimaginable 10 years ago. And not just the big companies. not like, oh, we're going to try and hack Raytheon. Of course, people have been trying to hack Raytheon forever. We're talking about their three tiers down the supply chain person that's literally making that key component. They're not going after Raytheon. Raytheon's yeah. got amazing security. They're hacking you. They yeah. can get in through stuff. Joe's pretty good machine shop. Yeah, exactly. that's doing work for Raytheon. Exactly. Yeah. And I think that's kind of risk is huge in the supply chain. And it's not just for defense stuff. We talk about that as national security. It's important, but it's your key information. I mean, let's say you're making product for just about anybody that's somewhat proprietary. They don't want their key information on how you manufacture this and where the flaws are. And they don't want that information out there. And at some point, this is going to be the norm. People are going to be trying to get all this information from the source manufacturers. Do you think that the reason manufacturing is such a target is because they're more gullible to it, for lack of a better word? Like they're easier targets, not Raytheon, obviously, but a few tiers down, like they're doing what I do where I have passwords where I shouldn't have them and stuff like that? Or I think a couple of reasons. One, even though there is a good, strong push for uh, lots of new automation Traditionally, the manufacturing industry has been pretty kind of old-fashioned, right? And so they probably are easier targets. Not that they're more gullible, but they're just easier targets because they don't have as much of the security in place. And then the other, I think probably even more important, is it's just really rich stuff that these people want to take, and it's valuable. So companies are going to pay that ransom because they really, really don't want that data leaked. So, And I think manufacturers create a lot of very important information, 
like how to make something. I mean, if you're a manufacturer, you know how hard it is to figure out a new way to make something that's challenging. That information all on its own is incredibly valuable to lots of other people. How was that made? It's one thing to have the end product and try and reverse engineer it, but sometimes it's about how it was made that really would be juicy information. Well, if you think about going back many, many years ago, a lot of the manufacturing companies out there really got their starts during some of the wars. And things are heating up in like our global political environment, unfortunately. And this would be the first time where, yeah, like foreign countries can hack into manufacturing companies in order to steal that intelligence or shut them down. Yeah, so if you think about down you're going to shut down a manufacturer that's important to creating defense parts, that's going to give you an advantage if in like a wartime situation. And I'm not trying to like spook people as far as that goes, but there's things going on and it's a tactic. It's a tactic just as much as shooting a bullet. I mean, I hate to say it, but it's a tactic that countries employ. And I'm sure our country is doing that too. Cyber warfare goes in both directions. And unfortunately, manufacturers are going to take the brunt of that. So they need to be prepared. And I wish I could say that I don't know anybody who's been ransomed for just money, just straight up. You have to pay to get your data back because somebody managed to hack into your systems. But it happens a lot more than we'd all like to think. I know somebody. I know a couple of people. Manufacturers. Yeah, manufacturers. Yeah, Yeah, we do as well. We wish we could say we don't, but we do. I know. And because people don't talk about it, I think there's a thing out there where like, well, it probably doesn't happen. I don't hear about it much. It's like, guess again. And the manufacturers I know that got hacked are very benign. Like they would have nothing to do with making defense or aerospace or space parts. The parts that they make are very much just general industrial parts that are just so benign. They weren't targeted in that way. They were targeted strictly for the cash. Yeah, it's a profitable they were holding business random for, for some corrupt people. And the thing is, these organizations, so these organizations that are doing this are being run like companies and they have negotiators on their team. They have customer service people on their team. This is no joke. One person that I know that got hacked had a negotiation with an individual because it was a significant sum of money. And he was like, well, let me go talk to my boss and maybe I can cut you a deal. I mean, that's the kind of language. I mean, because they feel that they're in business and that they're serving some kind of purpose. I don't know what. I mean, it's just, it's crazy. So yeah, just to the point about why cybersecurity makes the list, I think that on top of all the risk that's out there, these elements of security and cybersecurity, regardless of whether you're going full certification and you're in the defense business, this element of it is so much easier for people to target. And there's so much money to be made from hacking in and getting your data and even just ransoming it back to you that this is a significant threat you just cannot avoid. And it's so much the case that it's all fine until it's totally not. I mean, if somebody said, hey, by the way, there's a one in 50 chance that someone is going to just come along and totally burn the building to the ground, you'd be like, whoa, we got to mitigate against that, right? Yeah. So what's step one? Okay, like the CMMC probably has some guidelines. And that's like step 20 is CMMC. Yeah. <laughs> Which we'll talk about I mean, in a future you, episode. Of could Making you Chips. go to their website and figure out step one or is, is this going to be another episode? Well, CMMC is going to be not step one, but I think figuring out step one is important. Yeah. Yeah. Because I mean, you have to work your way up to AS9100 or CMMC certified or whatever, right? Yeah. So, so what's the first thing to do? I know what I did. So let's get into this in a future episode of Making Chips. We're going to talk about CMMC. I think we're going to start with the basics of cybersecurity. So let's wait. So 
In a future episode of MC, we're going to talk about CMMC. And we're going to do it with our two great guest hosts here. All right. All right. But so first, we it. have to end this one. And we how do we do this it? One. Paul, you're guest hosting. You can end. You know how we sign off our show. Well, before we do that, what'd you learn here today from Paul? I mean, I know I learned something. Everything was juicy and wonderful. Yeah. My biggest takeaway is when I originally started with thinking, hey, why is cybersecurity one of the top four things that differentiates between a have and a have not? Now I'm like ready for this next episode because they've already convinced me. It no, should I, be up there. I agree. And I think my biggest takeaway is that these last two points on what's going to differentiate the haves from the haves not. I didn't know what we were going to talk about until we actually sat down and talked and I'm kind of blown away. But this is giving me some good information when I talk to my clients and say, hey, you got to listen to this episode because there's some important stuff here that you're probably not aware of. Because I don't think this is on everybody's radar. I have one more takeaway. Okay. Paul was an awesome season's guest host. You were great, Paul. And he brought a great guest too. (laughs) Yes. Well, thanks guys. This has been super fun. (laughs) Do I have your permission to have him sign us out here? One last thing. I love your Bucky's socks, by the way. <laughs> oh, yeah. We took a picture of that when we were in Texas. That's yeah, awesome. I, I yeah. decided not to wear the onesie today. Yeah. But uh, I did go for the I socks. I saw that on LinkedIn. <laughs> My wife's from Texas, and I showed her that onesie and everything that you got. So that was great. <laughs> All right. So, yeah, the way we wrap these up, if you're not making chips... You're not making money. Bam! Bam.